years ago, before I came to Good Shepherd, in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement, I preached a sermon about how white people can be helpful allies in the fight against racism using advice gleaned from black activists. In the days following that sermon, a parade of white men made appointments with me to correct my thinking. I found that both frustrating and amusing, but the most helpful reaction came immediately after that service from an old woman named Anne. She took me aside and said, thank you for making me uncomfortable. Sometimes I think our society has declared war against discomfort. And I see this most clearly in situations where people with a lot of unearned privilege confuse discomfort with actual threats to their safety. Of course, I want and need this congregation to be a place where people are safe. I pray that you may be safe here, whoever you are. But do you feel comfortable at Good Shepherd? Is that a requirement for you? Or are you able to lean into occasional discomfort and uncertainty to allow God to lead you someplace new? During Lent, we've been walking in the footsteps of our ancestors in faith. We've journeyed from the Garden of Eden to Canaan and then to Egypt and back. From the wilderness, the Hebrew people did indeed come eventually to the promised land, and they conquered it and settled in it. Instead of forming a government, they appointed judges to settle their disputes. But that didn't go well at all. Eventually, the people clamored for a king so they could be like all the other nations around them, the nations that continually threatened their existence. God kept saying, you don't need a king, you have me. Just stay connected to your source and all will be well. But the people insisted they couldn't follow a God they couldn't see. That was too uncomfortable. They wanted a human representative, a political leader, someone to fight their battles for them. Otherwise, they just wouldn't believe they were safe. Eventually, like an exhausted parent, God gave in and anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. Over time, though, the relationship soured between Saul and God, with the prophet Samuel stuck in the middle. That's where we pick up the story today. God says to Samuel, forget it. If the people still insist on having a king, we need to find a different one. So God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city are right to tremble because they know about the antagonism between Samuel and King Saul. They feel uncomfortable and wonder whether they will be safe. Does Samuel come peaceably? Well, ostensibly, yes, but secretly, his mission that day is to anoint a competing king. This will stir up trouble for sure. But since God was the one to set Saul on the throne in the first place, God has every right to mess with the assumed norms of human monarchies. So Samuel goes looking for the most kingly person in Jesse's house. Should that be someone tall, someone strapping, someone handsome? God whispers into Samuel's mind, 
No, not that one. He looks too much like a conventional king. That's what got us in trouble with Saul. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. We need someone different, remember? Jesse offers Samuel seven sons to consider. Seven, a number of fullness and completion. Now, if I were Samuel, I'd feel pretty anxious and hurried. I'd know I'd need to keep my purpose hush-hush so King Saul wouldn't come after me. I'd be tempted to assess which of these seven young men God objected to least, anoint that one, and be done with it. But Samuel is called a prophet for a reason. He listens intently to God to figure out what is good and right and true. And no matter how Samuel looks at these seven men, he sees clearly that the slipper doesn't fit. There must be someone else we haven't noticed yet. Rejecting the entire available pool of leadership takes guts. Samuel is saying, there's a rightness I'm hanging in for, and I'm not going to allow my sense of discomfort to short-circuit God's process. So Jesse calls in the youngest, the shepherd boy, though it wouldn't have occurred to anybody that he would matter at all. Oh, and will you look at that? He may not be super tall, but he is good looking. So God doesn't only call ugly people either. (laughs) Samuel anoints King David. He anoints David king over Israel, and then he goes home. And then nothing changes. Saul goes on being king, not just for a few days or a few weeks, but for years David will be given many opportunities to seize the throne by force, but he'll pass up every one of them. He'll bide his time in profound discomfort and, frankly, lack of safety, and wait until God is good and ready. When the transition finally does come, it still won't come smoothly. Lots of blood will be spilled, including that of Saul and his sons. Yet David won't be the one to do the spilling because he knows he doesn't have the right to harm the king God anointed first. Well, that's a different kind of political leader. David's not perfect. That becomes abundantly clear in his reign. But most of the time, David is not pompous or self-assured. He waits, he reflects, And above all, he doesn't assume he knows best. God is the true king. David takes his orders from God. It's the only way to be a good shepherd to God's people. In our desire for perpetual comfort, we humans want to see clearly. We want to be certain. We want to be assured once and for all that we're on the right track, that we've said the magic words, that we cannot possibly go wrong. We want to see, but we do wrong when, for the sake of expediency or certainty or comfort, we insist that we already know everything we need to know. God has no use for self-appointed experts. It takes humility to sit in the discomfort long enough to learn from it. We hear in the letter to the Ephesians, Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. But how? Well, we are to look for what is good and right and true. 
And that's not at all the same thing as familiar and safe and expected. The good and right and true is just as likely, perhaps more likely by God's reckoning, to be something that will make you feel deeply uncomfortable at first. It may make you want to take refuge in what you always thought you were certain of. But no matter how certain you are, that doesn't make you right. And insisting on being right all the time can actually take away your freedom. Freedom to learn, to grow, to celebrate life joyfully in God's presence. The late writer Rachel Held Evans wrote in her book, Searching for Sunday, Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create sanctuary. True wisdom means moving from, this makes no sense, to, I don't understand. You are being invited into greater vulnerability. You are being given an opportunity to say, I don't know the answer yet, and that continues to bother me, but you may even learn that you need to apologize for something, for words you have said, thoughts that have led you to harmful action, or perspectives that were too narrow to help anyone. It's better to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, provided we remember that in God's reckoning, we are safe. Keeping these two things distinct can help us learn bravery. Indeed, the safer you know yourself to be, the more fearless you may become. The way a shepherd boy nobody has ever paid attention to suddenly finds himself able to slay a giant. Or the way a man who has always been overlooked because of his disability now sees clearly, not just literally, but sees clearly what is good and right and true and directly challenges those privileged people who are so sure they understand, but who are unable to see the good right under their noses. We've come so far from the Garden of Eden. You wanted to learn and grow, right, humans? Well, then you don't get to remain comfortable. No matter how broad a perspective you claim, in this moment you're being called to stretch even farther because you are safe to do so here. And notice the relationship between the word safe and the word saved. To be saved is to belong and to abide. Belonging to God as a part of God's universe is your original and perpetual state. You are never separated from God. Sin, sin means fooling yourself into thinking you are separate. That you can function apart from God. That you see just fine, thank you, and need nothing more to be shown to you. Sin is making the mistake that you need to take measures to protect yourself from God's revelation to you. Even King David will fall into this trap. And when he does, he will let God down, he will let himself down, he will let his whole kingdom down. Must this pattern of sin continue forever? 
Can we not both trust in God and follow a trustworthy king we can see? Hello, Jesus. Welcome to our world. A world in which we prize certainty, not because it's real, but because it's a tempting illusion. A world in which we prize familiarity, not because it's good, but because it's less work. You are here to burst our illusions, to call us away from mirages in the desert to the real oasis, the one right around the next corner, the one we can't yet see at all. You call us away from smug self-assurance and teach us to be humble, to admit to others what we do not know. Yet you also encourage us to share with joy what we strongly suspect and to seek out and welcome those who have been rejected by others in their, uh, their smug certainty. Christ Jesus, remind us of our ultimate safety. Created by God the Father's love for us, secured by your faithfulness to us, and supported by the mysterious ways of the Holy Spirit. Keep calling us to lean into our discomfort instead of running from it that we may learn that the sanctuary in which we are standing is on truly sacred ground. Amen.